I invite you to find a copy of God's Word and, and make your way to John chapter 18 this morning. Simply pick up where we left off last week in John chapter 18. We did the first 11 verses, so we find ourselves in John chapter 18, verse 12. Now, Peter, Peter was ready to face anything for Jesus Christ. At least that's what he thought. You see, earlier in John's gospel, we're told that, that Peter, in a very bold way, said to Jesus that he would be willing to lay down his life for him. And Peter, as you've probably noticed throughout John's gospel, is a little bit more of the impulsive type. He doesn't always think first. He acts first. And, and, and we see something of his bravery come out through that. When the soldiers and the officers, they come to, to arrest Jesus, to seize him, Peter was the one who didn't waste any time pulling out his sword and lopping off Malchus's ear, one of the soldiers. You remember Jesus who put a stop to it, healed the man's ear. I mean, this was his destiny, after all, to be arrested, to be tried, to, to die for the sins of his people. In a sense, Peter was the only disciple to have acted in, in a sort of a courageous way at that point. And it's with that same determination that Peter then followed behind Jesus Christ after his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and maybe he thought that the worst of it was over. And so he goes to the courtyard of Caiaphas, the high priest, in the, the dimness of the night. And, and Peter's heart had been so courageous, so bold, and, and yet it was laid so bare by the words of a slave girl who asked him the question, are you also one of his disciples? And Peter did the exact thing that he said he would never do. He denied Jesus Christ. In virtually moments before when he was ready to die for him. And so as we look at this portion of John chapter 18, I want us to consider something. As we look at Peter's denial, what I want us to do is to just take an honest look at our own hearts. Because lurking in the shadows of every soul is the capacity for denying Jesus Christ. And maybe you say, hey, never. <laughs> never. But that's what Peter said. That's exactly what Peter said. And if Peter were here right now, my guess is he would tell all of us to seriously take a look at our own hearts. It's only by looking at the deceitfulness of our hearts that we're then able to stand for Christ each and every day. And so this passage before us has something to teach each believer about himself or herself. So look with me at John chapter 18, and we're going to read beginning in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. 
Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. Now, as this passage unfolds, there's really two, two dramas going on. There's four scenes. There's two dramas being pulled together. You have not only the denial that comes from Peter, but you have the trial of Jesus that is beginning to get underway. Well, well why does John report both of these? I mean, you see it. It kind of goes back and, back and forth, back and forth. The trial of Jesus, the denial of Peter, the trial of Jesus, the denial of Peter. So, so why does John write like this? Well, one thing is obvious. Both of these events are happening at the same time. And so it makes sense that he's reporting both of them, going back and forth between these two. But there's another reason. There's another reason. What, what John is doing is he's using this as sort of a rhetorical device. He's sandwiching one scene inside of another scene in order to make a point. And here is his point. Jesus is on his way to die, to be executed, and the very reason he's doing that is to pay in full for the sins that are being committed by, in many ways, his best follower. Now think of it this way. What Peter is doing in that very moment is denying Jesus. And when he's doing that, in a sense, he's sort of painting this dark background, but a background that displays the lights and the glory of God's grace. I mean, this, this is grace. Jesus is on the way to the cross to die for the sins that Peter is committing in that very moment that Jesus is being tried. And so you don't want to miss this intentional contrast between Jesus and Peter. The, 
the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithlessness of Peter. We see unchanging, divine, determined faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and we see it against the failures of Peter and the other disciples. So here, Christ, in a small measure, is exalted while Peter is humiliated, and rightly so. Sad, ugly, horrific denial that comes from Peter is like a black canvas, but projected onto that canvas is the light and the glory of Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross. All to remind us that this this had to be his hour. This is why Jesus had to die. Jesus had to die to pay for the sins of Peter as well as the sins of you and me. Well, over 300 years ago, Matthew Henry, the English minister, divided this story to two parts, the fall of Peter and Peter's getting up again. And that, that seems like a pretty good outline to me. So let's start with Peter's fall. It's, it's a Thursday night in Jerusalem. It's, it's late. And Judas has already betrayed Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders, um, just as the Scriptures foretold. It says in verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, you have to understand something about Annas. He used to be the high priest. And the high priest changed every once in a while. And, and he had no fewer than four or five sons who at one time had been high priest, and now it happens to be that his son-in-law is the high priest. And so in a sense, Annas being the father and father-in-law of all these high priests is kind of the patriarch of this priestly family. And, and in a sense, even though he doesn't hold the title anymore, he's kind of running the show. So they, they take Jesus to him first. And the interesting part really comes in verse 14. I mean, look at it again. It was, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this is a clear reference to John chapter 11, when, when Lazarus, you remember, has been raised from the dead. One of Jesus' greatest miracles, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and what sort of happened then is this, I mean, it was a buzz. Everybody was talking about it. All the Jews were talking about what he did. And all of a sudden, the religious leaders got, got worried that what was going to happen is that, that the other Jews were going to believe in him, that his followers were, were going to grow and grow and grow, and that this would, in effect, have a negative impact on their power, their money, their standing with the Roman government because the high priest uh, had a bit of a business going in the court of Gentiles and and extorting people, and so they're worried that their pockets are going to be emptied. And so this is what happened in John 11. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children, the people of God scattered abroad. Now here's what's really ironic about this, is that Caiaphas is, he really knows nothing about 
the atonement of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the fact that Christ came in the world to stand in our place and to die for our sins that the righteousness of God may be credited to us. He, in fact, really had no idea what he was saying. From a human perspective, he was saying, listen, it would just be easier if we killed Jesus and the rest of us can get on with our lives. Jesus seems to be kind of meddling and messing with everything we're doing, so if we just kill Jesus, then, well, that problem is taken care of, and he won't uh, interfere with our cheating of the people, our relationship with the Romans. This was a good political move, and for him, Jesus dying was just merely a means to an end. But even though that he was ignorant of the truth, he, he prophesied the truth. I mean, the truth that Jesus stood condemned in the place of sinners so that he could gather into one place the children of God. I mean, this is, this is the gospel starting to unfold. And so it's interesting. Here, Jesus, he's brought before the high priest. But in so doing, what it shows is that Jesus is the true high priest who through his death and his life, he intercedes for his people. Well, we go back to Peter. We go back to Peter. Remember the story goes back and forth, and when we go back to Peter, we find him following Jesus. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, that other disciple is probably John. John had a way to just referring to himself that way. Very, very humble. He said, another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So Peter, he's, he's following. And I think it's safe to assume, again, that John was with him and he he followed the crowd to the house of the high priest, and the house opened into to a courtyard which could only be entered through a gate. And by the time Peter got there, the soldiers had taken Jesus inside to meet the high priest, and there's no how telling how many people there. Maybe there was 50, maybe there was, maybe there was 100, who really knows? I mean, there were soldiers, there were servants, there were certainly the passers-by. I mean, there were people who were just... You know, there's a big commotion going on outside. There's police sirens. There's an ambulance. And, you know, people come out of their house and they want to know what's going on. And so people are coming out and trying to see what's happening here. And, and Peter, for some reason, Peter thought he could blend in. You know, he could, just, he could just sort of slip in. I mean, obviously, I mean, he was in the garden. He lopped off Malchus's ear just before this. So people would have kind of had an idea who Peter was, but he thought he could just slip in and come in in the late evening to see all the excitement. Now, again, it's sometime after midnight, and in the darkness, Peter comes to the gate and waits to be admitted. No one there knows who he is, at least that's what he thinks. So he says, hey, it'll be safe to go. I mean, this is kind of enemy territory for him, but it's in the middle of the night. There's no reason for them to suspect anything. But then she speaks. The servant girl at the door speaks to Peter. This wasn't unusual. I mean, as a servant, she was probably there to just kind of take notice of who's going in, who's going out. That was probably one of her jobs. And verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now imagine 
being Peter, and those words hitting you like a ton of bricks. I mean, somehow she recognized him. He's probably wondering, how in the world does she know me? No one knows. It really didn't matter how she knew, but what did matter is that somehow she knew that he was connected to Jesus. Peter, having to think fast, simply says, I am not. Well, well, this is Peter's first lie. Blatant lie. Peter, who's walked with Jesus for three years. Peter, who's been called by Jesus. Peter, who has said, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll never leave you. I'll never betray you. This is Peter saying, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who this guy is. I'm, I'm not one of his disciples. So you have to ask the question, why? Why would he lie to her? I mean, here it is. She's, she's a slave girl. It's not that she's one of the high priests. It's not that she's a soldier. It's not that she's a Pharisee. I mean, here he is, the one who said he would die for Christ, and now he's lying to save his own skin. All of a sudden, Peter seems to be afraid. And so you have to be wondering what's going on with Peter, did he forget what just happened in the garden? I mean, Peter wasn't arrested, nor were the rest of the disciples. I mean, even after Peter swung the sword, taking off an ear, and that courageous moment now shifts to a moment where he's a liar. And in a sense, Peter is wanting to be unnoticed as a Christian. I mean, he's following Jesus, no doubt, but But notice he's following Jesus at a comfortable distance. Jesus is going into trial and Peter's kind of hanging out in the background. Peter's following from afar. He doesn't want to publicly identify with Jesus. He doesn't want to be known as one of Jesus' disciples even though he really is. And this, I think this is a danger that exists for all of us. So perhaps in your circle of friends, your coworkers, or or whatever, there's this matter of Christ that arises. Something doing having remotely to do with the gospel arises and, and an opportunity even arises and, and you've publicly maybe trusted Christ for your salvation in, in a church building, but in that moment for some reason you're not wanting to be recognized as a Christian. Right? And, and for whatever reason, embarrassment, awkwardness, you, you hold your tongue from confessing that Christ is Lord. You fail to testify about his redeeming grace. And, and so what happened to Peter, in a sense, can really happen to any of us. And maybe it has happened to you. Well, then the story continues. In verse 18, now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And and so here is Peter standing with the slaves and the officers in the dark by the fire trying to keep warm. And and it's probably not the best spot for him. I mean, here he is trapped between his immediate fear, not wanting to be publicly identified with Christ, but yet at the same time, I think if we know Peter well enough, we know that Peter really does love Jesus. And so he's trapped between the the two, and he doesn't want to be exposed because he fears for his own safety, but then because he loves Jesus, he's sort of hanging out in the background, and he's trying to blend in with the crowd, and and, and the slaves would have been, you know, domestic slaves of the, the priestly family, and 
They're officers and temple police, and Peter's there with them by the fire. And so all of his self-confidence is gone. He's afraid, but he can't remove himself. And so there he stands in this really awkward and dangerous place. Because he's trying to blend in with everybody who's not a Christ follower. Now, of course, the scene changes once again. We start out with the, the trial of Jesus. We go to the denial by Peter, and then we go back to the trial of Jesus. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus. I mean, this is all going on at the same time. He questioned him about his disciples and his teaching, and Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together, and I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? All those who have heard me What I said to them, they know what I said. Now, don't want to spend a lot of time on the specifics here, but what we need to know is that this is a this trial is really a sham. I mean, it just it didn't even follow the legal requirements of the law at that time. Um, It's essential regulation of Jewish law that a prisoner must be asked no question, which by answering they would make an admission of guilt. It's really the same thing as the Fifth Amendment. That a criminal can't be made to incriminate himself. If you're going to find someone to be indicted or be guilty, there has to be evidence beyond a self-confession. You can't make someone confess. There needs to be witnesses. And, and the person on trial is innocent until proven guilty. And so that's why Jesus responds the way that he does. He's not being uncooperative. But he's saying, hey, listen, if you're you know, going to try me by the law, you guys need to go and ask some witnesses what I said and... and do this the proper way. Go ask my disciples. Ask the people who have heard me. I've been, everything I've said in, in public, I've said in private as well. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But, what if, I, but if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I mean, here you have the first of what would be many blows to the Savior. And remember for a second, against Peter's failure, you have the glory of Jesus Christ shining against that backdrop. Jesus is going to the cross to die for Peter's failures, for my failures, for your failures. And what's interesting here is that when Jesus is hit across the face, literally in the Greek, it means to, to give a blow to the, to the face. And, and the temple police, typically it wasn't just their hand, they had a club. They carried clubs with them, so he probably smashed them in the face with a club. And, and that's an exact fulfillment of Micah 5.1 where it says, with a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so even in this, Jesus is proving himself to be the judge. Jesus is proving himself to be the Savior as they try him, as they hit him, as they falsely accuse him. Here in this court, there's, there's a judge, but he is Jesus, the true judge of Israel. And the other Gospels record that, record that instead of bringing in false witnesses, they falsely accused Jesus of blasphemy. They accused him of trying to overthrow Caesar because he claimed to be a king. All in all, they decided a long time ago that Jesus had to die even if there wasn't sufficient legal evidence. 
And so in John's account, he's bound and sent off, sent to die for sins that he never committed, sent to die for Peter's sins in that very moment. Of course, this brings us once again back to Peter. This is all happening at the same time. You get to verse 25, and now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. You know, when you think about it, Peter should have done something after the first time. Because here he's denied Christ twice. But after the first time, here's what he should have done. He should have stopped. He should have recognized that he sinned against the Lord. He, He should have addressed the problem of sin in his life. He should have confessed it. He should have turned from it in repentance. He should have sought from there to firmly stand by Christ. But instead, his first sin, his first lie just went unchecked. I mean, sure, he might have had a slight consciousness of it, but he, he just sort of threw it off in that moment. He, he, he let it go, and maybe he just chalked it up to a momentary lapse in judgment. But whatever happened, this is what we learn. That when sin is not dealt with, it leads to more sin. When sin in, in, in our lives is, is unchecked, when it's not dealt with, when there's no repentance, when there's, there's nothing done to make it right, there's no way to remedy the situation in our minds, it breeds more sin. One lie becomes two lies, two lies becomes three lies, and, and you can just say that for whatever sin you struggle with. Now, one of the servant girls of the high priest, verse 26, a a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, she asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and and at once a rooster crowed. So so sin, in whatever form it confronts us, has this way of kind of of making, slithering into our lives, wrapping itself around us until we're crushed. It's relentless. It pursues us until we stand against it with the armor of the Lord, until we get to the point where we can rest in the strength of His might. It, it, it flings fiery darts at us, and, and, and in everything, it tries to bring us down. And so we bring so much trouble upon ourselves by sin that is not dealt with when we, when we allow our spiritual sensitivities to be numbed to these things. I mean, there's a sense in which we can, we can go down that road where we become more and more numb to the effects of sin in our lives. The more we ignore it, the less it bothers us. The longer we put off dealing with it, the more it becomes not so much of a big deal to us. Perhaps we get to the point where we consider that we're mature enough that we, we can turn away from any sin and And we do nothing to ever look at the deceitfulness of our own heart. And we do nothing to look at our own weaknesses. But here's the thing. There's no person who's so mature that they're not in the danger of giving way to sin. I mean, think about Moses, for example, who gave way to his impulsive anger. Or or David, for example, who gave way to his lust. Or Hezekiah, who gave way to his 
pride. All of them were men of God demonstrating what we would call maturity, but in an unguarded moment, they were devoured by sin. I would suggest that Peter's simply doing the same thing. And so it's all the more important for us to see ourselves as, as weak. If we rest in our strength, we will surely be blindsided by sin. If we neglect to set our affections upon the Lord, we're opening the door to sin. If, if we ever get to the point where we become confident in our own spiritual lives because of the things we're learning, we are setting ourselves up for failure. Think of the Apostle Paul. Here's, here's a man who walked with such spiritual maturity that he could, with confidence, tell other people to imitate him like he imitates Christ. But even him, even Paul, who, who had some incomparable experiences in the Christian life, he was still liable to weakness as any other human being. That's why he said to the church at Corinth, he said, I don't run aimlessly, I do not box as one beat in the air, but listen, but I dis- discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Hillary said, listen, I keep a guard on myself, lest I do something that would then disqualify me from preaching the gospel. So where did Peter go wrong? I mean, how did Peter get from the place where he is, Jesus, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus, I'll lop off somebody's ear for you. Jesus, I'll never leave you to, I don't know who Jesus is. Let me give you some ideas. I think number one, Peter talked too much. I mean, Peter talked when he should have been listening. At the Last Supper, Jesus told all of his disciples, he said, listen, you guys are going to desert me. All of you? And Peter, again, impulsive, not listening, he says, nah, I won't. Can you imagine six hours later that, that scene, that conversation playing back again in Peter's mind as he regretted it? Peter failed to understand his own weakness. Peter probably got to the point where he didn't think he would ever do anything such as as sinful as denying Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter also ignored the warnings of Jesus that were given to him. Uh, Peter also followed afar f- off. I mean, he, he followed Jesus, but, but you get the idea that it was from a distance at this point when he should have been right there at his, at his elbow. In, in this case, following Jesus from afar is what got him into more trouble. Peter warmed himself with the wrong fire. I mean, here he was in the company of his enemies, I mean, the people who sought to kill Jesus. And it's not that Peter was going over there because he wanted to evangelize them. Peter went over there because he wanted to blend in and be like everybody else at that moment. But he placed himself in a, in a dangerous spot. He was, he was also unprepared when the attack came. I mean, when they asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? I mean, Peter is just completely taken off guard. He's not prepared. He doesn't imagine this would happen. And lastly, he compounded his sin by first deceiving, then denying, and finally swearing. We, we get that from some of the other gospel accounts. He denied Jesus not once, but three times. A failure that I'm sure he remembered for the rest of his days. I mean, the church remembers it over 2,000 years later. 
And I think if we take this to heart, if we, if, we, if we seriously consider the fact that none of us are beyond Peter's sin, we'll listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Now when Peter failed the Lord so miserably, he probably thought everything was over. I mean, Matthew's gospel uh, it tells us that the rooster crowed and Peter denied Jesus for the third time and when Peter went out and wept bitterly. And perhaps you find yourself identifying with Peter from time to time when some sin's thrown you to the ground, when it stood over you, it's, 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 it's beaten you down, you felt like um, you can never go on in seeking the Lord, but, but thankfully as we read in the Gospels, Peter... Peter's like us. Peter fell, but, but Peter got up again. And if Peter got up again, then that means there's hope for you, there's hope for me, there's hope for everyone. And so Peter got up, and I think there's really four steps, clear steps in Peter's getting back up again. Number one, we heard the rooster crow. I mean, the Gospels, uh, although slightly different in their accounts, the different details, they're all unanimous in this one point. The rooster crowed at the exact moment of Peter's third denial. And, and this, well, this was a fulfillment of what Jesus said. I mean, as the words came out of his mouth at that very instant, from somewhere off in the distance, a rooster began to crow. And, and when the rooster crowed, Peter remembered. William Hendrickson put it this way, this hidden memory will pull the rope that will ring the bell of Peter's conscience. It suddenly became clear. I mean, how rash he had been only six hours earlier, how, how prideful, how cocky, how confident in his own strength, how sure he was in his own abilities. When the sound of the rooster crow came, Peter, he heard the words of Jesus, Peter, I warned you this would happen and you didn't believe me. That may seem negative, but it had a way of jarring Peter. And then, not only is the rooster crow, but, but there's the look of Jesus. Now again, the other gospel accounts help us piece together a fuller picture of what's happening here. And, and Luke's account of this story contains one detail as the others don't. Luke twenty two sixty one says that when the rooster crowed, the Lord turned and he looked straight at Peter. Now imagine it's the middle of the night. Jesus already having been beaten some, his eyes may be swollen, his face bloody. He looks at Peter, and Peter can see him perfectly, perfectly in the dimness of the light. He, Jesus just looks at him. He doesn't say a word. He looks at Peter, who denied him for the third time. Everything has happened just as predicted, and it was the look of conviction. It was the look of, of Jesus looking at him saying, Peter... Peter, you said you didn't know me, but you know me. But perhaps it was also a look of compassion. Peter, Peter, look at how weak you are without me. Thirdly, there's the words of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all they all stress that when the rooster crowed, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. 
before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And so it was, it was his memory more than anything else that brought Peter back to God. Not only had Peter fallen, he had fallen after all of his boasting, and it happened just as Peter, Jesus had predicted it would. So those words, spoken in love, lodged themselves in the mind of Peter. He remembered what Jesus said. Fourthly, Peter's tears. The words used mean that Peter wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. I mean, he, he realized what he had done to Jesus. He realized everything that had just happened, how far he had fallen, how he'd hurt the Lord, how he had denied Christ, and he wept bitterly. Now, you might say, so did Judas. I mean, right? Isn't that how the story goes? Judas, he realizes what he did, he, he wept. Well, that may be true, but it's clear from Peter's account, that there's more than just regret. When it comes to Judas, we see regret. I mean, nobody likes the consequences of their sin. Judas regrets what he did, but there is no clear repentance from Judas whatsoever. Tears are only good if they lead to a new devotion in Christ. They're only good if they need, lead to this new determination to serve him. And, and so we may weep and weep, but if our hearts are not tender and open before the Lord if we're not repentant before the Lord. Those tears don't really do us a whole lot of good. But for Peter, his tears signaled the breaking of his heart because of his sin. Reminds us of what happened to David. Psalm 51 is his prayer of repentance. He says, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. There's brokenness. Here's why Peter's encouraging. The story of Peter's encouraging to us. At his core, Peter was fundamentally loyal to Jesus. I mean, I think the scriptures put him into this direct contrast with Judas. Judas, who was uh, fundamentally loyal to himself. Peter, who was fundamentally loyal to Jesus. And, and it's not that Peter lost his salvation, then somehow got it back again. No, Peter failed. Because he failed himself, because his courage failed him. The courage he used in cutting off an ear in the garden, that failed him. Remember what Jesus did uh, in Luke 22. He prayed specifically that Peter's faith would not fail. I believe that prayer was answered. Because the Lord knew that Peter would deny him. He knew what Peter would do. He knew how he would react. He knew the kind of man that, that Peter would be afterwards. And Peter, if you know anything about Peter, he did much more for the kingdom of God after his fall than he did before his fall. I mean, before his fall, he was loud, impulsive, boisterous, unreliable. And then after that, he somehow became the steady person in the beginning of the early church. He became an incredible preacher of the gospel. Before, he was a big talker. And now afterwards, he would only talk about the things that Christ could do for other people. I mean, he was the same man, but he was different. Which goes to show that sometimes it is in our falling, when we get back up again, that we then begin to experience maturity. I mean, he was still Peter through and through, but he had been sent through the ringer and 
And now, now Peter was even more useful to Jesus. So who does the story apply to? First of all, it applies to everybody in here who's being tempted. I mean, everyone who feels the pull of circumstances that are trying to draw you away from the Lord, this comes to you and says, take heart. If you feel weak, if you feel confused, so did Peter. If you're discouraged about your life, Peter felt that way too. If you feel backed into a corner, Peter felt that way too. But this story is for you that the grace of God is available for you. And with that, it's... For people who have fallen, perhaps you've given way to the pressure, perhaps you've carried a load of guilt because of something you've said and something you've done and something you're struggling with and you say, hey, listen, it shouldn't be this way and you find yourself in a just predicament in life where you know what you're doing is wrong, take heart, Peter was there. Third, those stories for those who are kind of coming back to the Lord. People have sort of slipped. People have fallen back. Perhaps, perhaps you know all about the, the, the bitterness of, of weeping and you, and you feel as if God is far away from you and it's you who have put the distance between you and God. You feel embarrassed. You're humiliated by the things that you've said and done, by the way that you're living life. But take heart because Peter has been there too and the grace of God came to him and it comes uh, Because if there's a story in the Bible that gives us hope, it's the story of Peter. If he can fall, anybody can fall. But if Peter can come back, anybody can come back. And the reason why this can happen is that the faithfulness of Christ overshadows, covers the failures. Peter covers the failures of you and I. Because while Peter was denying Jesus, Jesus was dying for him, and he was dying for us. Father, what a, what a sobering story, but such a hopeful story. Lord, all of us may be in sort of different places. I mean, it's you who plums the depths of our hearts and knows our condition, knows our predicament, knows where we are. And I pray that, that should we be anywhere close to where Peter is, that recognizing our weakness, recognizing our sin, recognizing that the best place to be is as close to you as possible, I pray that we would draw close and close to the Savior who died to pay for our sins. And Lord, I pray that, that in coming back to you, just like Peter, we would be even more useful to you and more impassioned to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in the name of your only Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.